My dad retired from the Navy in 1960, and I was 12 years old, and he had been in the service for over 20 years, gone through the Second World War, and all he talked about when we were growing up was when he retired, we were going to buy a farm. And so he bought a farm down in southern Oregon in Myrtle Creek, and, uh, and while we were there, he... Uh, there was a, right next to our farm, there was a fellow who had a, a, a gold claim, and he died. And so my dad filed on that claim. And, uh, and we used to do, go up there and do some mining on that little claim, uh, Rancheria Creek, a little bitty creek, you could jump across it. And then we sold the farm in 1965 and moved up to Washington, uh, where I went and graduated from high school, Trout Lake, Washington, and that's where I left from in 1976 to come pastor here. My dad once a year would drive down to the claim uh, for about two weeks and mine it. He had to do so much work on it to keep it. And so for the last years of his life, once a year he would drive down and, and he would stop by and pick me up and I would go down with him and we would work on that gold claim for 10 days to two weeks in this little bitty creek. And he had a, a dredge that was on a tractor inner tube and a motor on it. And we'd suck up stuff on the bottom of the creek and it would dump into the sluice box. We'd do that for two or three hours and then we'd empty, he had a piece of carpet on the bottom and we'd take it up and empty the contents into a five-gallon bucket and then do some more. And then when the bucket got full, we would sit on a little stool in the creek and pan the contents of that five-gallon bucket. And we would find gold. Most of the gold we found was, as was just little bitty stuff. Uh, my dad at the time smoked, and most of his cigarettes, he had a little can of tobacco in his shirt pocket and a, and a thing of paper, little cigarette paper, and he would take one out and put the tobacco in and roll it up and lick it. And, that's what, and the, the gold we would find looked just like that tobacco that was in that can. It was about that color. It wasn't bright yellow. It was kind of a dull brown color, but about that size, just little bitty stuff. And so when we were panning, I was always looking for tobacco. And, uh, and so we worked a lot of hours. I mean, like 10, 12 hours every day for a couple of weeks looking for gold. And I thoroughly enjoyed that with my dad and uh, uh, getting that. And we had it in little pill bottles, the gold that we would find. We'd take it out with tweezers. And uh, you think, that's a lot of work to find that little bitty gold. In uh, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, there's sort of a, a key verse for my life in regards to what we're doing now. And also, it became a key verse when I was trying to figure out what the will of God was for my life. Back when I was farming, trying to decide if I was going to farm or pastor, this was a, a major verse. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, to hide it. The glory of kings is to search it out and to discover it. I remember thinking, you know, if God really wants me to do His will, it looks like He'd make it a little bit easier to find. I would say it almost in irritation and anger, anger at God. Come on, Lord, you, I want to do Your will, but why in the world does it have to be so hard to figure out what it is? And then I, I remember somebody giving me this verse. And so I memorized it. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. And so God wants us, I think he just kind of wants to know whether are we serious or not. We really want to know or, or don't we? And so you want to know my will? Well, work at it. And so the same thing's true with the Bible. You know, sometimes you read the Bible and you think, you know, Lord, if you really wanted me to do what's in it, it seems like you'd make it a little easier to understand. Why in the world is it so difficult with all this 
It's just kind of confusing. Well, when you, when you think that, read this verse. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. And so uh, he wants us to look, to search, to work, to find his truth. And so that's what we're doing. And we're talking about hermeneutics. And it's the principles, the rules. While we were panning for gold, there were certain things we discovered that worked, certain things that didn't work. And so the more that we discovered did work, the easier and the, and the quicker and the faster the job went and the more gold we found. So I'm going to uh, give you a principle this morning that's going to be one that many, many, it's amazing how few Christians have ever heard this or practiced it, but it's a real basic one. We'll start out with it. 51 in your notes, the word mystery. It's often used in the Bible to refer to previously unrevealed truth. The word mystery. It's used regularly in the Bible, and whenever it's used in the context, truth is being revealed that has not been previously revealed. And so last week we talked about the fact that the Bible is written progressively. That means it starts out with some stuff and then more and then more and then more and more and more. And one of the mistakes we make when we read the Bible is we assume that, you know, whoever wrote the Bible knew everything from Genesis to Revelation all at the same time, but that's not true. Romans chapter 16, verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you, this is Paul who wrote Romans, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. Revelation, that's truth being known, of the mystery which has been kept secret long ages past, but now, but now is manifested. So there you have the definition right there in Scripture. The mystery has been kept secret. Information not previously revealed until the point at which it is revealed. 1 Corinthians 2, 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. If they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians, here's some truth and Nobody understood it. Nobody knew it. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. And so Paul was one of those apostles that was able to reveal some truth that had never before been revealed. Mark 4.11, and he, Jesus, was saying to them, the disciples, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables. And so he explains to them the meaning of the parable of the sower. He gives them the details about this is what the sower is, this is what the seed is, this is what the birds are. He explains the whole thing to them. He says, you, you disciples, you get to understand the mystery. Everybody else, they, it's not given to them. Romans eleven twenty five. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, I, I ask this question periodically, and some of you may remember, what's the hardest book in the Bible to interpret, to understand? Sometimes people say the book of Revelation, but it's not. 
It's the book of Acts. The reason is because the book of Acts begins with the audience. Remember, when you interpret the Bible, you always ask the question, who's it written to? So Acts begins with 100% being written to Jews, Jewish believers. Day of Pentecost, every believer was a Jew. And as you move through the book of Acts, the audience becomes less Jewish, more Gentile, until you get to the end of the book of Acts, and it's 100% Gentile. So all through the book of Acts, you have this wedge on top of a wedge. The fat part of the wedge is all Jews. The skinny part of the wedge at this end, here the skinny part of the wedge is Gentiles, but it gets fatter and fatter at the end. So you have this transition through the book of Acts, all, Gen all Jews, ending with all Gentiles as the audience of what is being written in the book. Well, if you don't figure out who the audience is as you read going through it, then you're going to come up with some faulty interpretation of Scripture. And so Paul says that here. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, he's writing to Gentile believers. You think you're cool that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Partial meaning temporary until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until the church age is over. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, this truth is going to be so critically important when we start asking ourselves the question, why, who, uh, and we determine who the audience is uh, based on previous revealed truth. So he says, here's a mystery. Israel has been hardened and the Gentiles are now the audience. Colossians, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh, that's his physical body, he's living in a physical body, I am too, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Now that'd be cool if every person could say that, wouldn't it? I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking. Is anything wrong with our church? Sure. Paul said, if I were in your church, I would be working at fixing what the problems are. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your, for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is the mystery, the mystery. So every time you see that word, you understand here is some previously unrevealed truth coming. The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, which has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Christ in you. So, do you ever read that in the book of Genesis, that Jesus lives inside of people that are believers, followers of him? No. Wasn't in there. How about Leviticus? No. How about Psalms? No. How about Proverbs? No. How about Malachi? No. You don't get it until you get to the church. And Paul says, here's a mystery. Christ lives in you. Never been heard before that. Christ in you. I could ask you the question, you're a believer in Jesus. Where's Jesus living? He's living inside of me. That's true only for the church, the church age. Never revealed prior to this 
Revelation that Paul gives in Colossians to the church of Colossae. Ephesians 3, that by revelation there was made known to me, Apostle Paul speaking, the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known. Not made known. Previously unrevealed truth revealed at a point in time, it's returned a mystery. And so Paul was given uh, at least five different truths that were a mystery prior to his revelation from God and his writing of it in the, in the, uh, in the epistles. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, here's, here's the mystery. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, you read the book of Acts, the Jews have a big problem whenever the Gentiles, oh, what? we're the chosen people of God. What's going on here? And so the mystery is now the Gentiles, they're part, they're in. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, was, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, the mystery which for ages has been hidden. The mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities, that's angels and demons, in the heavenly places. New truth never before revealed. Paul reveals it, uh, and basically it's about the church, the church. So there is a little bit of stuff, truth, information about the church in the Gospels, but just a little, and Paul refers to it as the mystery of the kingdom. And very few people got it, just the apostles. 52. Paul was the first writer of the Bible who mentions the rapture of the church. Up until then, it was a mystery. Now, when you talk to believers, Christians who've been Christians, who've read all kinds of books on the book of Revelation and prophecy, and ask them about this particular point, a whole lot of people have never, ever gotten this point. The rapture was a mystery previously unrevealed until the Apostle Paul. He's the first one who ever wrote about it. So if you read about it before then, you're not reading about the rapture. It may sound like it, but it isn't. And so the biggest problem we have when we start having discussions, and we're not getting to it yet, this is a preview, uh, are we talking about... Me, you, going through the tribulation, getting raptured before, in the middle, or at the end. You know, the, the problem comes when we fail to distinguish between the second coming of Jesus. The second coming is when Jesus lands on the planet. Just like he did the first coming. First coming, he came as a baby. Second coming, he comes as a king. He lands on the planet. He destroys the the kingdom of darkness, and he establishes his kingdom on the planet Earth. That's the second coming. And prior to that, at some point, depending on uh, what our understanding is, we, the church, we meet Jesus in the air. He doesn't come to the Earth. He just comes to the, up there, and we meet him, and we take off to heaven. Now, the question is, when does that happen? 
The problem is that we take the second coming and the rapture, we make them one and the same. Now, the second coming, it was prophesied all the way back in the book of Daniel. Isaiah, Ezekiel, all the Old Testament prophets talked about the kingdom and the king. So when Paul teaches about the rapture, it's a different event. Never previously revealed until the point that he reveals it. Well, the average believer reads about the second coming, reads about the rapture. There's some similarities in that Jesus is in both of them, and both of them he comes, but there's differences in the audience and in the timing and in the proximity. And so if you don't get that figured out, um, <clears throat> I, I used a word last week, and I looked it up, the word hash. I found out that that can mean marijuana. <laughs> yeah, you know. Friday night at my house when I was a kid, we had hash. Now, hash was basically everything we hadn't eaten for the next previous week. That was hash. You, just, you, know, you, you ate it. It was good, but you weren't sure what it was. It was a whole bunch of stuff in there. And so it was a pretty regular occurrence, having hash. And so what I say regularly is if you don't keep things straight, you're going to end up with some hash in your theology. That is, as things mixed together and, uh, because you weren't able to discern which was which. So here's the passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, previously unrevealed truth. We will not all sleep, that is, we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, we will be changed. So, a mystery, never before revealed. So, if you read about it before this time, you're not reading about the rapture. Number 53, the rapture is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, there's room for it. There's sort of parentheses and places it fits. And once we know we get to the end and read everything, then we can see where it does fit, but it's not mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, most people, that's not a problem. Yeah, I recognize Old Testament, New Testament, there's some differences. Uh, number 54, the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Church was a mystery, not revealed to the Apostle Paul fully developed until the Apostle Paul. Everything in the Old Testament, God's people were the nation of Israel. 55, Jesus didn't teach about or mention the rapture. Now, for some of you, you this is... Uh, it's like, what? No. Jesus lived died, crucified, buried, risen again. Church begins on the day of Pentecost. A little bit later, Paul comes along. Has, he gets caught up into the third heaven. He has his time with God out in the wilderness, and he is given a bunch of previously unrevealed truth, and nobody knew about the rapture until the apostle Paul. So whenever Jesus talks about something that sounds like the rapture, it's the second coming. He talked about it to Jews who understood that totally. It's all through the Old Testament. 
56, there are two comings of Jesus. The first is called the rapture. The second is called the second coming. You know where the word hash comes from? At least the hash that I grew up with. It comes from the word hatchet. Yeah, you take a hatchet, chop everything up, mix it up, throw it in the pot. Uh, seems reasonable, is remembering what hash looked like when I ate it as a kid. And so, you don't want your theology to be all chopped up, mixed together, thrown into the pot. You want it to be all separate and clear, and it makes sense. It's right in sequentially in the order that it's supposed to be in. So let me read a passage, and again, this is a little bit before the topic, but just to illustrate this point, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. So, question we have to ask is, we talk in rapture, second coming. As you read, it becomes fairly clear. Paul dealt primarily with the rapture because he's writing to the church. So I want to talk to you, Paul says, about the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to Him. That happens in the air. He's written about it in the previous chapter. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as from us. So when Paul was writing his letters and dealing with the church, a lot of stuff got sent out under his name that wasn't true. So he was always dealing with this bad information. It was mostly Jewish individuals who were upset that the Gentiles were in, and so they created all kinds of conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so he says, I don't want you to get all upset now. You're, you're, you're kind of getting anxious, sort of like a COVID virus thing. And uh, he said, don't do it. Uh, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, as we go through this class, we're going we're gonna to identify some words and some phrases that have the same meaning from Old Testament all the way through the book of Revelation. One of those phrases, this is the phrase, the day of the Lord, day of the Lord. Uh, the book of Joel in the Old Testament uses that phrase 15 times. The whole book is about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the term that is for the tribulation, the seven-year period that is first introduced by Daniel. A seven-year period as a Trouble on the earth like no one has ever seen before. That's the day of the Lord. Now, we'll look at that in detail for a couple of weeks, the term day of the Lord. You've got to get that one figured out. Old Testament prophecy all the way to the end of the book of Revelation where it's fulfilled. And so Paul says, I don't want you getting all excited here that the day of the Lord has come. So why would that make them excited? Why would they be all in a tither because of the fact that somebody says, we're living in the day of the Lord? The great tribulation is coming. Here we are right in the middle of it. Well, because Paul told them they wouldn't. They were going to leave before the day of the Lord. And they said, oh, no, we've missed it. We got left behind. I check the news in the morning when I get up and say, oh, I didn't see anything about the rapture. I guess I'm, I'm good. Yeah. As if the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. It, that is, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist. 
So the day of the Lord, that is the tribulation period, won't happen until those two events take place. The apostasy, which we'll look at a little bit later, uh, and I have a view on that which is held by many, that that's a reference to the rapture. And it literally means the leaving. The day of the Lord won't happen until the apostasy, the leaving, and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. The temple will be rebuilt uh, at some point during or before the tribulation, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So Paul says, don't you remember? I say that all the time. Man, didn't I tell you that before? Didn't I already teach that? You forgot it quick. Mostly to my kids I said that. I would tell you these things. And, and you know what restrains him now. Antichrist is being restrained. And so there's a number of views on that. My view is that restraining force is the church. We are the kingdom. We are the body. Uh, we are the power. And it's the church that tramples Satan that holds him at bay, what restrains him now. You know that. Why? Because Paul told him. So that in his time he will be revealed. That is the Antichrist. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. He who restrains the Antichrist will keep restraining until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So there we have it. Verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our gathering together to him at the end. In verse 8, it says that the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth the Antichrist, bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Two comings. One in verse 1, one in verse 8. And in between you have some events. So it's pretty easy when you read that to recognize they're not the same. The one is at the beginning, the one is the other is at the end. And in between there's a series of events that take place. But if you don't understand that the rapture is a mystery previously unrevealed, then... You're liable to make hash out of this. This is a messy hash when you get this one all messed up. It makes no sense. And so you keep the rapture and the second coming separate. You understand the sequential, there's a time space between them, and you can see that seven verses in between verse 1, verse 8, dealing with when he comes the first time and when he comes the second First time we're gathered to him, the second time he slays the Antichrist and establishes kingdom on the planet Earth. 57, one of the major challenges in studying prophecy is keeping the two comings of Jesus separate and clear. So I read a lot of articles online and books on the topic of prophecy, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and I don't know that there's any error that is made more often than the simple error of not keeping straight the two comings. And if you don't keep those straight, then everything gets twisted around. It's difficult to understand things sequentially if you get the engine and the caboose turned around. 
or try to make them the same. <clears throat> 58, because Paul is the author who introduced the mystery of the rapture. Every reference that Jesus makes to his return is talking about the second coming. Now, circle that point in your notes. That is critically important. Every reference that Jesus makes to his coming back is in reference to the second coming, not the rapture. The rapture had not been revealed yet, not until the apostle Paul came. Matthew 24, 14. I hear this all the time. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. And so people will say, Jesus can't come back because the gospel hasn't been preached to all the nations. They say, why does he need to come back? Uh, why can't he come back? Into, well, it says so in the Bible. Is it talking about the second coming or the rapture? Uh, did Jesus say it? Yeah. Not the rapture. Jesus never said anything about the rapture. It wasn't revealed until the Apostle Paul. It was a mystery up until then. So, have you ever said that? Jesus can't come and take us because the gospel hasn't been preached to all the countries in the world yet. Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. When it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. They sat down and gathering, gathered the good fish into containers. The bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. End of the age. End of the age is the very end. That's at the end of the book of Revelation. The angels will come forth, take out the wicked from among the righteous, will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not talking about the rapture. It's in the Gospels. Jesus teaches it. Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come. This is Jesus talking. So is he talking about rapture or second coming? Second coming. When he comes, lands on the planet Earth, has his warrior army with him, establishes kingdom, throws the Antichrist into the lake of fire, it's the end. He's going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, will then repay every man according to his deeds. Luke 17, 34, I tell you that on, on that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. Is that the rapture? It's in the book of Luke. Jesus is speaking. Jesus didn't teach on the rapture, only the second coming. Only the second coming. That's not a reference to the rapture. You hear people say it all the time. 59, many people use the allegorical... Okay, now, we're done with that. Now, we're going to go back to it because now we're just talking hermeneutics. We're not teaching on prophecy. That's just an illustration of a point of hermeneutics. That is, interpret the Bible progressively. That is, understand that truth is revealed progressively, like a novel. And one of those truths is the rapture. There's a point at which it's revealed. Before then, there's nothing there. It's only from this point after. That's the way you understand the Bible. Ask the question, who was it written to? Who was the audience? What's the timeline? 
uh, so that you can interpret things. So we'll come back to that one. So we're done with that point, okay? You ready? We're going to shift gears now. Many people use the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible today. Don't do it. It's nonsense. Now, if you would like, you could do what I did, and that is I just put nonsense in there for you tender, sensitive people. In my notes, I really have stupid, <laughs> absurd, absolutely dumb. The allegorical method is nonsense. So don't even come close to that one. But there is so much stuff written today about the Bible written from uh, the allegorical uh, perspective in interpreting it. Number 60, the allegorical method says that the real meaning of what is written is hidden and obscure. I took... Uh, I forget the name of the class when I was in high school, some kind of a literature class, and we had to read poems. And the teacher of the class would ask us what the author of the poem meant. And I remember thinking, man, I wish I could get out of this class. This is like the dumbest class I've ever taken. Um, so sometimes people will do the same thing with the Bible uh, that is hidden, obscure, and that we have to learn to read underneath the obvious to find the real message. So in case you missed it, that's stupid. 61, those who teach the allegorical method would say that there can be several different interpretations. It can mean one thing for me and another for you. You ever been in a Bible study when you go around the room and, and the leader of the group says, okay, what does it mean to you? That's a stupid question. The question is, what do you think this means? From God's perspective, what was it he is intending to tell us? What's the truth of this passage? Now, what does it mean to you? Uh, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Uh, the Bible's truth. It's the mind of Christ. It's the Word of God. It's our authority. And as soon as you start making Scripture allegorical, it means nothing. It has no clout. It has no truth. It, it, there's no standard whatsoever. But it's amazing how many people... Uh, will use the allegorical method, especially when it comes to prophecy. 62, those who believe the allegorical method will say that, they, that to deny this method is to quench the Holy Spirit's illuminating work in our lives and hearing God's voice. So you know what my least favorite word is in the, in the entire vocabulary of people, the word legalism. You know why? Because if somebody doesn't like what somebody teaches, they say, ah, oh, that's legalism. I, I hear it all the time. People will read, hear what I say, and they will say that what I'm teaching is legalism. As soon as it has anything to do with standards or discipline 
or rules that, oh, that's legalism. It's a similar word today in politics. Everything is racism. They don't like somebody, they're a racist. They just throw it out about everything under the sun. Uh, And so, another word that kind of gets thrown out is you're quenching the spirit. You're quenching the spirit. Uh, Somebody read some stuff I wrote about goals and said, I don't believe that. You're quenching the spirit. Everything's quenching the spirit. If you use rules to interpret the Bible, you're quenching the spirit. No, we're just using the mind that God gave us. <clears throat> 63, many of the heretical and false teachings going around today come from using the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. So I'll read some things. I'll say, how in the world did they get that? Then as I read a little further, I say, oh, that's how they got it. They can come up with anything. So any section of Scripture has one interpretation. One interpretation. It's the message that God intended to be given when he inspired the writer. He was writing as a person with his mind, with his his vocabulary to an audience of which he understood, understood certain things, and he wrote to this audience, recognizing they understood what he was writing. So we're trying to ask the question, what did the writer intend to say to the people that he was writing it to? And we will come up with one interpretation, many applications. 64, carried to the extreme, just about anything can be declared to be true from the Bible using the allegorical method. What time am I supposed to quit? Fifteen minutes? Okay, thank you. Carried to the extreme, just about anything can be declared to be true from the, using the allegorical method. Um, 65, the most basic principle of the literal, historical, grammatical method. That's the method we use. Literal, historical grammatical method is to discover what the writer of any given book was trying to communicate. So 66, we shift to a different topic in the context of hermeneutics. We're going to talk about metaphors and typology. Huge topic, so amazing uh, and fun to talk about metaphors and typology in the area of prophecy. But because it's going to take longer than we have left, I'm going to quit right there. And uh, Rich Siebens is going to run around with a microphone to anybody that has a question right there. on there uh might be a two-part question i guess so i'm still trying to understand going back to the difference between the rapture and the second coming we know also the woman at the well oh no or whoever the woman mentioned the resurrection and jesus said i am the resurrection and the life um so 
will it be the rapture or the second coming when all of us and all of the dead are raised and meet Jesus in the sky? I'm not confused about that. Okay, the resurrection, there's a number of, there's a couple of resurrections, actually more than two. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, topic of the resurrection, when I'm standing here teaching you and all of a sudden, and just like that, I change. I get a glorified body and I start taking off meet Jesus in the air. Now, my mom died uh, six months ago, sometimes this year, not too long ago. She is with Jesus, only her spirit, but she will receive a glorified body as well at that point. There will be a resurrection of the dead. Uh, The dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ shall rise first at the rapture. Now, uh, when you die, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. She's with the Lord, but just her spirit, just her soul, as it were. So at the rapture, her spirit and her body, her new body, her glorified body, are, res- are united, and I get to see her, and she's going to look a whole lot better than the last time I saw her. And off we go. So uh, the resurrection that occurs at the rapture is the resurrection of the church the bride of Christ. And then there's another resurrection described in Ezekiel 37, you know, the bones gathering, um, meeting bone upon bone, the nation of Israel and the dead, and there's a second resurrection that occurs, the second coming. So, uh, and there's also a resurrection of the bad people, the evil people that are going to be resurrected for the great white throne judgment. You don't want to be in that one. Uh, So you want to be in the first one. So which, which resurrection was Jesus just talking about? He was talking about the second. Anytime he makes any reference, it's not to the rapture. It's always to the second coming. I'm so, still confused, but I'll email you, I guess. Say it again. De- I'm still confused, but I'll email you to try and hammer that out. Thank you. Um, Wait until he gives you the mic there. You can hear me. Uh, well, everybody else needs to hear you too. So you mentioned the last trumpet is when the rapture is going to occur. Which is, what, what is the last trumpet? Is it the last trumpet that we read about in Revelation? Or is it a, so that's, that's where, that's one of those things that's kind of the odd, odd thing where people kind of mess up probably where, where we're being raptured are when that, you, you said it was the last trumpet in the first Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. So the, um, if you look at trumpets, will be a topic we'll study when we get to that topic. We'll look at the day of the Lord. We'll look at uh, a number of things, the kingdom. One of the things we'll look at is the use of trumpets in the Word of God, and uh, there is a bunch of trumpets there. In fact, one of the periods in the judgment seat of Christ are the seven trumpets. And some would say the last trumpet is referring to the seventh trumpet. Uh, it could be, but uh, probably not. And we'll look at that. It's going to be a longer answer than I can give you now. But the point being is that we will hear a trumpet sound uh, as part of the uh, uh, rapture experience whenever that occurs. So I'm not telling you at this point when the rapture happens. Okay, I'm just telling you one particular bit of information. That is the rapture and the second coming are not the same thing. 
Now, some would say they happen at the same time. We'll deal with that when we get to it, uh, but they're not the same thing. So you, you said that the, the correct interpretation is the literal rather than the allegorical. Is it possible in some cases that um, both interpretations are simultaneously correct? For example, the eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Could that be both literal and allegorical? Well, we won't use the word allegorical. What we would use is uh, that it can be a metaphor. Now, the difference is the metaphor are consistent. And so we'll talk about that, but when we say Jesus is the Lamb of God, where does that come from? It comes from the book of Leviticus. And so is that consistent all through the Bible when the phrase lamb is used in reference to Jesus? It's a metaphor. Obviously, he's not a sheep. It's a picture that illustrates something, but it's consistent. Uh, it's not one time the lamb, one time something else. So metaphors are used through the Bible, uh, and types are used. A type is something that's a picture in the Old Testament that illustrates the truth in the New Testament. The Ark of Noah is a type. Jonah and the whale are a type so Jesus said, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the center of the earth for three days. So it's an illustration or a picture of a truth. And so uh, metaphors are used. Jesus said uh, in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Is that the door of your house? What's he knocking on? Uh, and so obviously... I don't have a door in my heart. What, what's, what's he knocking on? I knock on the door. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. And so, is that literal? No. no. We would call that phrase that's used wooden literalism. So literalism allows for, it allows for metaphor, it allows for typology, it allows for pictures. The whole book of Leviticus is a typology or a picture of New Testament truth. So Adam is a type of Jesus. Isaac is a type of Jesus. They illustrate or picture him. So uh, there's illustrations given, but we understand that something is used, in a, used as a metaphor or as a type. It's not allegory. The problem with allegory is that it changes. Uh, you decide. So, so in a case... Um, where we read a literal truth in the Bible, underneath it, it may have our, it, it seems to me, it always has a profound depth. And in getting into that depth of what, what is behind it, what it really means, or, or what we should bring from it, are we in danger of verging on the allegorical? We are. So we're going to get to the metaphor typology thing, and one of the things that I will say is this, uh, it's used all through the Bible. Uh, there's lots of metaphors. You can't understand prophecy without understanding that a whole bunch of revelation is written metaphorically. Uh, that's why we struggle with what it means. Uh, but uh, the metaphor is consistent. 
what is used. Every metaphor used in the book of Revelation is also used in the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Jeremiah, with the obvious meaning given. And so if you read Isaiah and Daniel and the other Old Testament books and then read Revelation, you see a metaphor in Revelation and say, what does that mean? Well, it's if you go back to the book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah, the book of Daniel, you will see what it means. Uh, so metaphors are consistent, but they are used, and it's part of this. It's the glory of God to, to hide a matter. It's the glory of kings to, to discover it. You use the Bible to interpret the Bible. You don't come up with it in your own imagination. And so uh, metaphors are used. Typology is used. And so in prophecy, we'll discover that a prophecy has a, a fulfillment and then another fulfillment. The first fulfillment often is historically, physically, uh, not much spiritual than the second one is very spiritual. And part of that is you understand the second one, then you fully understand the last one by the details of the second one. We'll look at some examples of that. Uh, the Antichrist is one. There was an initial fulfillment of a, 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 a Greek king who took over Israel and uh, offered a pig to Zeus in the temple. Uh, prophesied by Daniel, but he's also a prophecy of the Antichrist coming. And, you read, and we just read about it in Thessalonians. He enters the temple, declares himself to be God. That happened once already uh, by one of the uh, Greek kings that conquered the world after Alexander the Great. And um, so the prophecy has an initial fulfillment and then a second fulfillment. And so as you study history and recognize and you see those, you can see that the detail of how to recognize that. But stay away from allegory. And obviously, you can make metaphor and typology. Uh, it'll go over the line. And uh, once you can't interpret it for sure from Scripture, then you're using your imagination, then you're running into trouble. And so you want to be able to say for sure this is what it means. I'll give you a quick example. Um, Jesus tells a parable. Sower went out to sow seed. Some seed fell on hard soil, the birds ate it up. Some seed fell on, on rocky soil, some fell on, uh, so, uh, fell on soil where the weeds choked it out, and then some fell on good seed. And he tells this to the crowd later, the disciples said, Jesus, we just didn't get that one. And so he said, the sower is the preacher, the seed is the word, the birds that ate it are demons. And so a little bit later you hear, some statements made about birds and what they do. And you say, ah, I think I read somewhere about birds. Oh, huh, yeah. And so you can be consistent in the metaphor. Uh, the seed, you can be consistent in the metaphor uh, of the way it's used as you, Jesus interprets it there, and then from then on you use the same metaphor. It's not something that you just decide it's been decided. Use the Bible to interpret the Bible always. And if you can't figure out what the Bible says about it, then just uh, have reservation on anything that says this is what it means. Long answer to a short question. Okay, another question? Um, just a simple question about a term. I understand about the two different comings that we're still looking forward to, but I always thought the first coming was the... Um, Incarnation and the nativity? It was. And so that's not wrong to... The first coming is Jesus lands on the planet in the form of a baby okay. in a manger. Second coming, he lands on the planet in the form of a king. 
the rapture, he doesn't land on the planet. We meet him in the air. Okay. Thank you. I've spent my life as a biologist, and uh, so I have a, a technical question for you. Uh, when we talk about uh, being reunited, or the dead in Christ will, will rise first, and their spirit be re reunited with their body, just get your perspective on the, the practice of, crea of, of creation, or <laughs> cremation. And uh, it, it just, doesn't seem like the right thing to do for me. But anyway, just to get your perspective on that. So in the book of Revelation, um, one of the resurrect when it talks about people being resurrected, and one of the statements is made is those who have uh, uh, died at sea or who are in the ocean during the Second World War, people who were killed at sea got buried at sea they had a casket and they had a service, they dumped them off. Uh, and so I've often thought, you know, that when I die, I'd like to have Patty put my body in a wood drift boat that I built and put a, some sticks and stuff in it and uh, put it in the river and then before it hits the ocean, torch it. And I'll go out in the ocean. And so if you, uh, as Revelation says, were uh, the, the ones, people who are resurrected out of the sea, if you get dumped in the ocean, how many fish eat you? A bunch, I bet. And so they swim in different directions and they all poop you out in different places. Uh, so anyway, I, that's just a way of a crea a cremation. I understand the problem there is that we're not in one spot in a grave being resurrected, but I think that if God can resurrect a person that dies and is buried in the ocean, uh, he can certainly resurrect a person that's cremated. So there's nothing much written about that, uh, so, but uh, that's, that's kind of where I'm at on that one. Okay, this would be a good place. Oh, one more question. If it's a hard one, I won't answer it. We'll say we're out of time. It's not hard. I just wondered what commentary you would recommend to, when you're studying the Bible. You said last week there were some good ones. Well, uh, it kind of depends on what you're doing uh, with it. Uh, if you're just wanting something to help as you're reading through, uh, sort of a one volume, uh, one of the ones that I recommend often is Zondervan Pictorial uh, Dictionary. And so if you want to look up the meaning of a certain city or a certain word or see some history or some archaeological stuff, it's got cool pictures in it and almost anything that you need to know as you read through the Bible. Now, if, you wanted, if you're going to teach and you want to get more technical, then you're going to have to probably buy some uh, commentaries that deal with various books of the Bible as opposed to a single volume. But Zondervan's Pictorial Bible uh, Dictionary is a very, very good one, thorough, and almost anything that the average person wants to find out they can get from that one. It, so beyond that one, you can ask me um, based on what topic and what book uh, you want to read. All right, let me pray and we'll call her good. Father, thank you for your word. I do pray that each of us would be uh, understanding that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, it's the glory of kings to search out a matter, that we would be faithful to do that and we'd understand that your word is truth 
It tells us what is true, how to live, and uh, some sections like prophecy uh, take a little bit of work, and I pray that we would do that and we would follow the principles, we would interpret your word uh, literally the way that it was intended when it was written, and that we'd make application to our life. And as we do that, Lord, we will live our life with security, with purpose, and glorify you in all that we do. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.